Poland, uh, things that come to mind. Not a whole lot, no. <laughs> Poland, probably not a whole lot. Uh, Polish sausage. No, I don't know anything about that country. Poland, sausages, <laughs> pierogies. Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're going to try to show you. Welcome to Polcast. Hi, this is Margaret Małgorzata Bonikowska, your host, and you're listening to episode 92 of Polcast, recorded and produced by me in Toronto. We will say goodbye to the year 2022 in this episode of Polcast. It's been a horrible year. Nothing in our world is the same as at the beginning of this year anymore. The tragic consequences of the war in Ukraine are just impossible to list. Loss of life, horrifying injuries, people disappearing, children kidnapped, unimaginable suffering, cities and villages destroyed, millions of displaced, traumatized people global, economic, diplomatic, and political turmoil. I have produced two episodes of Polcast exclusively devoted to our sisters and brothers in Ukraine. Polcast's tributes to their heroism, showing also how much Poles in Poland and around the world care and try to help. This year you have heard many incredible stories and met many amazing people, Check them out on Polcast website, mypolcast.com. Polcast is not a news podcast. I'm glad that you like what we post daily on our Polcast Facebook page. Online articles published in many countries by many media outlets, often featuring really unique little-known stories. I encourage you to follow our Facebook page. As our podcast listeners know very well, I love featuring young people from all over the world and their interesting ideas and initiatives. You can listen to a number of such interviews on podcast at mypodcast.com. Today, I'd like you to meet such an amazing dynamic team from the UK. I've been invited to participate in an annual conference at UCL, University College London, and to share my knowledge about fake news. I'm really excited to be planning my trip to Britain, where I spent about two years of my life and traveled extensively. I was last in London exactly 20 years ago. University College London is ranked number eight in US World University rankings for 2023, and has produced 30 Nobel Prize laureates among its alumni and current and former staff to date. UCL was the first university in England to welcome students of any religion and women to university education. UCL students organize a huge, highly prestigious conference, UCL Leaders, 
an annual conference facilitating discussions on the most pressing international issues facing the world today. It started as an initiative of Polish UCL students, but has since moved on to a truly international scale. The upcoming UCL Leaders Conference is in January, and today I'm talking to two of a large team of its organizers, who will tell us all about this impressive event. I reached them in London. Oh, it's a great pleasure for me to have here Kaya, Kaya Poshnik and Olga Drigawa, who are both students at UCL in London. Nice to have you here. Thank you very much for the invitation. Yes, thank you for having us. And we're talking because not only do we want to find out a little bit maybe about your university, but also about an event that's coming up really soon. Yes, in a month or Very so. Soon. That's right. But let's first talk about how you found yourselves in London and what do you study and how does it feel to be at UCL? I'm a second year neuroscience student currently. And it's it's a lot of fun because obviously London is a, is a fun city. You know, you cannot really get bored here because all the time you have something to do, all the museums, um, centers, everything. Um, but in terms of the studies, it's very interesting. I really like my um, my degree. It's, of course, very challenging. Uh, there are a lot of challenges that need to be overcome, um, a lot of studying, self-discipline. But in general, we're making the most of it. Okay, so that was Kaya. Now, Olga. Well, I study data science. I'm also in my second year um, at UCL. And I also find London a very interesting place to live. It's definitely very diverse um, and very busy. It can get a bit overwhelming seeing so many people around you, but not really knowing anyone. But I think that once you kind of settle in and find the activities that you enjoy, um, you can make the most of it. And that's um, what I think Kaya and I have both been doing the last two years here. Our history goes back four years now. Um, So two years before we came to London, we um, both received a scholarship from the British Alumni Society back um, in Poland to study in the UK. Um, So we were very lucky to be able to continue our high school education the last two years in uh, school in the UK on a fully funded scholarship, um, which really, really helped us open the world to possibilities. And that's how we met. And we're doing a lot of a lot of good, I would like to say, in the world together. And one of the good things that you do is you organize this annual conference, UCL Leaders. What is UCL Leaders? So UCL Leaders is um, one of the biggest student-led conferences in the UK. Um, but it is a bit different from all of them because it is interdisciplinary. So it really allows everyone who wants to participate to um, really get involved because there's just so many different speakers, so many different uh, panels, so many different topics kind of being talked about that everyone can really uh, find something for themselves. We bring the current leaders in different industries uh, with the leaders of the future, so students. And we talk about business, art, technology, and politics and all the global challenges. Uh, that the that the society is facing today. So when did it start? It was created by the Polish Society at UCL seven years ago. But currently, it's a very international event because we believe that um, you know in order to become the leaders of the future, to to make an impact, one needs to have a global mindset and global out- outlook. 
we really value the international aspect of a conference, both within our team. So our team is composed of people from around the world, um, as well as the attendees and our speakers. There is, as Olga said, there is a real variety, that interdisciplinary aspect and internationality. Were you involved in those previous conferences? Um, We were involved in last year's edition as logistics officers. Um, And I think that gave us a lot of skills that we are using in our role now as well, because we really had to connect with other teams and, you know, take on some last minute um, tasks as well, some which were challenges, but um, we worked through them to make sure the conference happened. And currently we're really taking from those skills as well in our role as uh, project leaders. This year, how many of you are there in that organizing group? So it's about 30 people, I believe. Um, So it's quite a big group, but I think because of the structure of our team and how many sub teams we have. So for example, we have a team responsible for events and the logistics that focuses mostly on that. Another team responsible for the speakers and contacting them, making sure that the panels have a topic, have a structure. Uh, because of that, I think you don't feel that there are too many people, that there's enough enough people and everybody's really, really lovely and we're lucky to have a supportive team. What is usually the consequence of a conference like this? It's not just the event itself. Definitely, yes. Um, so kind of one big consequence that comes for um, attendees as individuals is the, the network um, that they gain, but also the opportunities that they can gain because of creating those connections. So personally, for me, it was, for example, uh, gaining a summer internship through someone I met at the conference. So I guess that's about that kind of students helping students, uh, professionals helping students to kind of accelerate their career um, and kind of reach their goals. Uh, But also it happens that some students meet and they create another project together or they set up a foundation together or, you know, they just happen to be really good friends after this conference because they actually find someone who's interested in the same field as they are, or maybe they find someone who they didn't know they would create such a great connection with because of the different fields that they're involved in on a daily basis. But because this conference brings so many people from different uh, backgrounds and interests together, everyone gets a chance to to explore really um, the world and the people that are there that you wouldn't normally talk to. And it just happens that, that, that those connections really remain. Um, and I think it's a beautiful thing. But a student-led conference, a student-led event that only lasts really two days can really bring people together. And people can find friends, mentors, opportunities to grow. Um, I think that conferences like this also help especially the students like people our age they're stepping into the the big world I would say um realize that actually what for example what they set their mind to or like what they dream of can come true because these really really amazing and inspirational people are right there a few meters away from them and they're very accessible and you can just talk to them um so I think it also helps in understanding that you know, if, if they really want to achieve something, it may sound a bit cheesy, but I think that is true. If they really want to achieve something, it is possible. You just reach your hand and it's there. 
Okay, let's talk about 2023, this one that's coming up. How different is it from the previous editions of this conference? I think um, we're really focusing on the international aspect of the conference this year. Um, it really become an international event not that, that long ago. So this year, we really want to make sure that there is a balance uh, between the speakers of different um, kind of background. I think another important thing is that we really focus on active participation from the audience as well. So this may not be, from our experience at least, this is not very common in conferences, but what our panels look like is that there is a discussion or like a fireside chat or, you know, the, a discussion between the speakers for about 40 minutes. And basically the same amount of time is dedicated for questions from the audience because this is the most valuable part of such events, um, giving the opportunity for the participants to connect with the global leaders and to ask them questions and be heard. Um, and who knows, some great ideas come out of these conferences and we really want to encourage that. And there's actually one more aspect um, of the conference this year that it will be very, very different from all the other conferences Kayan and I have ever seen that will be a, a London University store dedicated to high school students that want to um, kind of have a brief look um, at how living um, in London looked like and what their options um, are in terms of kind of universities, courses, uh, parts of London where they could live so that they can also ask questions and kind of talk with the current students. Uh, this will be the the very first edition of this event. So for the first time, you're inviting high school students from Poland to be able to participate both in the actual conference, but also in those those university tours. Yes, in the past, they, there have been some high school students attending, but that was the minority and that was only like individual students, really. This this year, we're inviting them as um, kind of as an actual cohort, and there will be um, activities that kind of will will be targeted at them. So, so they will be kind of adjusted to what they would like to maybe learn at this point in their educational career. You said it's very multidisciplinary. What sort of topics are you going to be covering in the January conference? Yeah, so um, as Olga mentioned, we focus on four main paths. That's business, politics, technology and art. And um we also really focus on the current events that what's going on in the world currently. So um, maybe we can give a little sneak peek of the actual topics that we're planning to have um, to encourage even more people to attend. So, for example, the politics panel, we will be talking about the geopolit geopolitics of space um, and the future of the politics of Earth conducted in orbit and beyond. So it may seem like a, like a bit of an abstract topic, but actually it's also very closely related to the war in Ukraine. And, you know, I really encourage you to uh, dig deeper into the topic and attend the conference because obviously our speakers team responsible for politics are much more knowledgeable in that topic and you know it would be great if you could talk to them in person and discuss that because of the interdisciplinarity we also focus for example on art because we believe that you know everything is connected in some way um so we'll be talking about art and cultural diplomacy versus like tradition versus pop culture which is um I believe especially now it's a very interesting topic because so much more like pop culture has become even more popular nowadays and how does it compare with traditional values cultures um so we will be inviting speakers from different backgrounds from the central eastern europe but also from the western countries um to have that discussion yeah, i believe it's, it's going to be a very very educational educational experience 
Um, so the third one will be a technology panel uh, where we will focus on innovation in healthcare. So, so kind of what the um, artificial intelligence taking over the world in different um, industries. We will talk about whether artificial intelligence is doomed to remain a startup level technology or whether it can go further to kind of help the world in, in that aspect. Um, and there will be um, a business panel, which will be, I think, especially useful to, to kind of students and high school students looking to kind of kickstart their career in the future, because we will talk about working in startups versus um, corporations and where um, students starting their career, uh, students that are fresh out of university, uh, can attain individual success, uh, where they can actually develop and gain some new skills and really learn some, something for themselves. We have a full day of workshops on Friday. So this is another part of the conference. We have workshops about fake news and... Um... Separating facts from fiction, panel from experienced journalists, media, and that's where the students will have a chance to, to learn how to navigate in the world of news from the mm -hmm. experts themselves. But that's mm -hmm. where you come in. We have a few workshops from our sponsors um, that, as Olga mentioned before, will focus more on like case studies, um, like real life examples of um, of their work. And the students will have the opportunity to work usually in teams to discuss the, the problem they're presented with and then present a, a solution and like different parts actually make a presentation. So this is a very, very... Um, real life scenario, what would happen in the in the job environment, for example, of that particular sponsor. Um, and we are also planning a, more of a soft skills workshop that I am really excited for. I think it's going to be a great one. Uh, it's about boosting one's personal brand with confidence. And it's with an amazing um, actress and uh, public speaking coach. Yeah, we also want to make sure that the workshops um, that our sponsors or partners are organizing are also very practical in contrast to like more theoretical introduction to a brand that kind of our participants actually get a chance to participate in a hands-on activity. And who are your invited guests? How many? Where do they come from? Yeah, so um, each panel is about four to five guests, um, including the moderator. Where do they come from? We have some speakers that come from London, but um, if you also come from Poland, if you are from the United States, um, I believe we're also uh, considering a few speakers from other countries such as Germany. For example, for the um, for the technology panel that Olga was talking about, we will be um, inviting Mr. Xuan Gui, uh, who is um, uh, an entrepreneur and um, he works in startups and he was recognized on um, Medica's list of 50 of the most influential voices in healthcare for the 2021. So I'm hundred percent sure that um, he has a lot to talk about in terms of AI and technology. And we will also be inviting Dr. Indra Joshi, who is a former member of the uh, World Health Organization Digital Health uh, Group. So obviously these are world, world experts from that field. The conference consists of four different parts. So 19th of January will be the London University Tours for high school students. The 20th, Friday, would be workshops 
and the 21st on Saturday is the discussion panels and networking sessions and a black tie ball in the evening. So that is the structure. And you have a new campus, right, that has just recently been opened. Is that where it's going to be held? Yeah, so uh, we're really hoping that um, we can showcase the new campus to the, our, our participants. It's it's brand new. It's called UCL East. It's uh, focused on innovation. And um, it's still in the works. Some, some parts of it are still being developed to make sure that uh, the students are provided with the best experience possible. So um, we'll be very happy to to welcome our participants there. Now, the participants in the conference are students at UCL and those people who will be coming, the high school students from Poland, or is it more open? It is actually open to everyone who wants to attend from everywhere in the world. Uh, for those um, who would like to uh, join us in London but can't do that, uh, there will be a live stream available online for free. So hopefully we'll see them um, in this virtual world. Uh, but actually even some members of our team come from other universities, come from abroad. So we have some people from the Netherlands. Uh, we have some people working from India. Uh, obviously some people working from Poland, but also some people working from Albania. So it really depends, but um, mostly... Um, students from London and kind of surroundings attend because of the distance. Uh, it's just easier, but there's a lot of students each year coming from different parts of the UK. So Edinburgh, for example, uh, but like I said, also from abroad. So from the Netherlands, from Italy, uh, from everywhere, really. So we really encourage everyone um, who wants to join to, to do so. We will be very happy to welcome um, as many kind of students from like diverse background as possible because like Kaya mentioned it's about global connections and about the global mindset. And how many participants are you expecting in person because obviously we don't know how many people will be online but in person and registered participants how big are these conferences? So it varies from year to year. Um, the last couple of years have been a bit, a bit uh, weird, a bit different because of COVID. Uh, but this year, we are hoping to see around 200 to 150 students come in person. Um, and hopefully even more people join us online, as, as it also happened in the previous editions, because we also understand that it, it is not always possible for people to travel that far in the middle of an academic year. So is there anything else that people need to know? Do they have to register if they're going to be attending online? So no. Um, the online part uh, is completely um, open to everyone to attend and join it kind of at any point of the event happening if they're only interested in one panel maybe uh, or want yeah. to hear from a particular speaker. So it would be um, entirely available on online for the whole duration of the conference. No need to register. Just visit our website and that's where all the links will be. So the website is uclleaders.co.uk. Um, that's where um, you will find the whole agenda uh, right before the conference, as well as um, updates on what's happening at the particular moment. And then can people also watch and listen after the yes. event is over? Yes, it will be available to kind of watch it later in the future. It, it will stay, stay there. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. That's so much work. It's, it's a lot a lot of work. Um but I think that the satisfaction that comes from being able to create such a such a 
um, you know, inspiring event, um, an event that has a lot of value is is worth all the hard work. Okay, well, I wish you all the best, of course, with this fantastic idea. And uh, I hope you are pretty well advanced in your organizational work because it's Christmas coming. So I'm sure you'll have a little bit. I hope you have some time off and, you know, time to relax and take your minds off organizing logistics and worries and this. I mean, so I wish you the most wonderful Christmas. And, well, I'll see you in London. You can learn more about the UCL Leaders Conference at Polcast website, mypolcast.com. Christmas is coming, and what's the best gift for Christmas? A book, of course. This one will be of interest to everyone. History buffs, fans of good thrillers, those interested in current affairs and the world generally. Who Has Buried the Dead? is based on historical facts so critical to the emerging world order after World War II that the NKVD, Gestapo, and the Allies led a desperate search using any and all means at their disposal, including murder, to solve the secret. K.G.E. Chuck Conkel, its author, has written two previous thrillers, both extremely well-received nationally and internationally. The Glorious East Wind, about the final years of British Hong Kong, in which he accurately predicted the Tiananmen Square massacre. The second, Evil Never Sleeps, shows the corrupt nature of Mexico's ruling party and its involvement in Mexico's state-owned oil company. Conkel appeared in media across North America, Larry King Live, NBC National, John Miller, PBS National Radio, David Letterman, and many others. And Chuck is a cop. Not just a regular cop, he's an international organized crime specialist, an expert in the fields of both Asian and Eastern European organized crime, with past assignments in Hong Kong, Poland, and Moscow. I am talking to Chuck about his book, and not only. Chuck, welcome to Podcast. It's a great pleasure to have you here. It's actually an honor to be here with you. We are approaching Christmas. I can't believe that uh, there's just like, what, three weeks before Christmas. But it's wonderful because Christmas time is when people look for really great presents, and books are the best, in my opinion. So I want to talk to you about your book. But before we get to the actual book, I wanted to ask you a question. I know you. this is your third novel. Yes. And yes, and they're all historical thrillers. So I want to know what really made you an author. I like to learn because of experience. And I found out that the world didn't start when people were born in 1990 or 2003. Or, but, you know, Faulkner said it best, the past isn't dead yet it isn't even past it's a you so often it's true so if you want to look at the that's going on you have to have a sense of history the context of how people live their lives where the children of the children of the children you can't dismiss for example the fight for democracy you can't dismiss the struggles of first getting freedom being occupied and getting freedom fighting for the freedom of other countries that's built into the gene pool of who we are as poles and we must remember that other people have forgotten that. Other nations have forgotten that. To them, history is the latest ballot box. I think history is more important than any political party. But you can't forget the past. 
We have to live through the past. We have to remember the lessons of the past and understand the past is still living. Interesting. So you believe that we are like a chosen nation and only we mm-hmm. are in that position? Like, why, no, what makes no, no, you no. say that? <laughs> no, I don't think we're, we're perfect. Lord knows no nation is perfect. Individuals aren't perfect. We're human. And so we have horrible faults. And the trick is to have the good overlook and outlive the bad in each and every one of us. I've been a police officer for a long time on three continents. And one thing I've learned is evil never sleeps. <laughs> and it can come in the most benign of ways. And you don't expect decent people to kill each other. You expect horrible people to kill each other. They don't. So it's it's not a case of a perfect nation or a perfect person. We're so imperfect. It's who we are. We're imperfect. You mentioned your um, your profession. You're you're an international organized crime expert, and you specialize in both Asian and Eastern European organized crime. This is amazing. So, I want to know how your over forty years. It's been over four decades of your work as a police officer, investigator. How did this all impact the books that you write? Well, unlike a lot of writers who go to Wikipedia and decide we're going to form ourselves based on what we read. I, I try to live the experience and I don't replicate it. My, my characters in any of the novels are not the real people that, you know, but they're, they're fictitious. But what I've learned is that no matter how you do it, a person in a, in a novel, in this case, whoever, the, the most recent one who has buried the dead, is not the sum total of who I am but it does reflect my experiences in life and some degree of knowledge. And you have to respect knowledge. And I think I'm one of the only books that's in one week moved up to number 13 of the top 100 new new books. And I also know as a thriller writer, I'm the only thriller writer who has a 100-page bibliography based on what I've read to form those ideas that make the thriller credible. So you have to have your feet on the ground You have to speak with some sense of accuracy and neutrality, but you have to place your characters in in a world where they are dealing with larger-than-life things. So in Who is Buried the Dead, uh, I've gone uh, to the general public will know some of the characters like Churchill and Stalin, who's in the book, Maria. But I've gone further because I think the book also aims at expatriate Polonia and that generation who who's, you know, more into TikTok, and I don't mean that politely and lightly, but they're more into TikTok and Facebook and and trying to make them realize that people like Berling existed, that Sikorsky existed, that the Warsaw Warsaw Uprising existed, that the underground was viable. I mean, these are real things, and you can't make them up. So you have to research them accurately. So I'm very sorry. You're not answering my question. My question I'm a good was, cop, not exactly, but I, <laughs> I want to get the answer to my question. My yeah. question was not about how important it is for people to know about the past, because you've already said that. But my question was, how has your work as a police officer and investigator, especially that uh. you, your specialty is this organized crime, international organized crime, how has that impacted your writing? And I don't mean the last novel, because we're going to get to the last novel in a second. I just finished talking to another accomplished writer, a Canadian, and uh, he's done a lot of work in in the same field, in the same genre I'm in. 
and how my professional writing and my my profession impacts my writing is is I, I tend to be very thorough, analytical, and objective. And those are skill sets that are acquired. You know, at 21 years of age, become a skilled homicide investigator. You don't become an organized crime expert at 23 because you have a degree. It comes from speaking to people, researching, researching, researching. When I appear in a court of law, I make sure that I'm thorough. I make sure that I'm credible. I make sure that the judge, well, makes by now the judges know me very well, thank you, because they, you know, when defense counsel sometimes throws up some argument, they say, Staff Sergeant Conkle is, is a credible witness. I know his testimony in the past has been honest, forthright, and detailed. Because you have to pay attention to detail in my profession, much the same as a writer of thrillers must pay attention to detail. And so how is my, my profession impacted? They, they overlap in some respects because I keep detailed notes in my work. I have a very good memory, photographic memory, they say, and I'm, I'm very good at being thorough where people say, oh, what happened three years ago? I can tell you contextually what happened in my profession. So I try to follow the same detailing in every book I write. Now, the most recent one is called Who Has Buried the Dead? And I want to start by quoting something that you said. You said that after years of in-depth research, I believe I have discovered one of the last great secrets of the Second World War. Wow, that sounds quite amazing. And I don't want to, you know, any spoilers, because obviously this is a thriller. So <laughs> so probably the question, what is that big secret? You won't be able to answer. But give us a little bit of an idea, because it sounds okay. like a very bold statement. I can give you a contextual idea that it, it shows very much uh, the unknown parts of a puzzle that Poland played in the years of the Second World War that was reached its fruition in 1954 without getting into detail. And there were uh, uh, several Polish scientists who were actually remarkably good at pure mathematics. They gathered at the Scottish Cafe in Łódź, and that they called it the Scottish Cafe because they'd all gone to Edinburgh University. And they had a, had a game they played. They got a book, and in that book, they would write a puzzle. They started with one puzzle, and the prizes started coming the winner of the prize for this month's puzzle. But the last puzzle was never solved, we think, but we know it was. That's factual. And we know for a fact that people were looking to find it. I could, we went through great detail in the novel to explain the fictitious characters who seek it and the real players who knew about it and how the KGB, or it was the NKPD in those days, desperately wanted to find that secret. And the new OSS, which is uh, now the CIA and um, MI6, and um, all those agencies were seeking it. The Gestapo were looking for it. And there had to be some reason they wanted that puzzle figured out. I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'm not going to tell you the hidden secret is. It's not what you think it is, but it is massive. And I actually looked for it. It was like I made this up. It's factual. It exists. Um, the book was never found during the war, but somehow it made its way where it should end up, that the puzzle did, I'm sorry. And very much critical to that was the work of Polish underground, Polish scientists. This is one of the great things that we've done. It's one of those great parts of history that is not well known, but you have to put it in a way that it's not dry because pure mathematics can be very dry. You know, 
it's like an algorithm. You go, oh, really? I have to read this? So you try to put it into a palatable way. So my characters uh, play off against real characters in real situations. And so there is a barrier. There is a Berlin. Uh, there is a Stalin. There is a Churchill. And there's larger-than-life fictitious characters who, who interact with these on three continents, in Asia, in North Africa, and in continental Europe, specifically Eastern Europe. Wow, that obviously must have required a lot of research. It so- was hard but fun because mm-hmm. research is what I live for. And yeah. that's why my investigations are always very good. In the promotional materials about your book, of your book, it says that the book offers profound historical insights into the mindsets of Soviet hierarchy. And that interests me a lot because obviously now with the situation, geopolitical situation, I should say, like globally, we are all nothing talking about nothing else but the Soviets, the Russians and all this, mostly Russians, but we also go back to the history of the Soviet Union. Now, you have some very clear ideas of the fact that what's going on now uh, should be traced back a long time ago, right? I, I think, uh, and I use this as a benchmark, it's very detailed in the book, is the massacre at Katyn. And I, I don't this because I'm Polish, but because it's a very good sign of what will happen uh, when that kind of regime, that kind of dictatorship, that kind of oligarchy takes hold. And and so Stalin was a precursor, but he wasn't the first. Remember, the Tsars controlled Poland for a long time, and so and Eastern Europe. And the Russians always had this paranoia. So if you look carefully and you draw quick graphs of comparison Stalin to Putin, you see um, suddenly Stalin found religion in the middle of the war, and Putin suddenly found religion. And now the Russian Orthodox Church is supporting Putin much as the Russian Orthodox church supported Stalin. Stalin was not above using uh, mass murders to force his way, and Putin's doing the same. Um, The difference being that I think Putin is a better version, a more sophisticated 007 Russian style. In the last five weeks, they've had Russian sleeper spies captured in Sweden, Finland, and other Nordic countries. That didn't happen overnight. It was like we had perestroika, and they were like, oh, we're nice people. We love each other. We help each other. You know, put it in context, many of us have friends from uh, from the USSR, Russian people we know, or maybe in Belarus or maybe in Ukraine, those gray zones of the Kresme. But And they're not bad people. But the people that rule them intentionally feed them propaganda. So where Goebbels was master at his time, I think Putin doesn't care about global propaganda, but he feeds an audience that wants to hear what he has to say, that Mother Russia is great. Mother Russia needs has the right to rule the lands that are always in that gray zone and are always vulnerable to, and Poland's one of them, always vulnerable in that gray zone. So do you think the world has been extremely blind and naive all oh, these think, years? Oh, yeah. I We continue to be duplicitous. So in other words, we, we talk a good game, then we still trade. There are oligarchs and and pariah nations, they call them, you know, like like uh, Syria, you know, Iran, uh, and to a lesser degree, China. But there's also the trade with Russia to keep their rubles viable. And there are also countries uh, that you would never think twice would be still trading. Germany still trades in some respects with Russia. Uh, still, <laughs> Russian cars 
are Mercedes. <laughs> they don't stop being Mercedes. France still wants to make some accommodation. And the trick is to understand that, that Putin has a, a mindset that is, is single-minded and he has a willing audience. When, when Hitler, to put it into context again, fought in the Second World War with, with Barbarossa, the occupation and the invasion of Russia and the western part of Russia, the Baltic states, what have you, he thought he was defeated by Father Winter. And he was. The winter killed the German army uh, much more than even the, the Russian soldiers. It was just a horrible, horrible, the worst winter they'd ever had. And when Putin is now in power, he's created his own Russian winter because he controls the media. He controls every facet of the media. So they hear only one truth. There's no, no radio free in Russia anymore, right? There's nothing there like that. And remember something, and we have to put it in the context. He is a very sophisticated man, but he plays the right music because there are at 12 cities they call the hero cities in the USSR when the war ended. They were deemed to be hero cities because the, the military and the civilian populations fought and survived like Stalingrad. Leningrad, but four of those hero cities are in the Crimea, in the area that Putin says is we fought for, we died for, it's Russia. And there are people in those areas who, who still believe that they are, you know, ultimately Russians. And wh whatever the Ukraine, the history of Poland, the Ukraine, the reality is today is today, and Ukraine is tending toward democracy. And that is what a nation wishes to do. There are peaceful ways to attain it not occupying it, throwing missiles across their broadsides and, and, and you know, harming a civilian population and creating what, what a lot of people call is genocide, much as Second World War saw Stalin do the same thing. Putin is an upgraded version of Stalin, but he's more sophisticated because he knows how to play his audience. And ironically, it, in many cases, the audience he plays for is not the poor soldier who goes out there as a conscript or is taken out from one of the eastern parts of former Soviet Union, you know, Asiatic part of the Soviet Union. But he, the, the audience he's playing to are people who don't get drafted, and moms and dads and grandparents who talk about the glories of Russia. And remember, as far as Russians are concerned, the war started in 1941, and whatever happened in Poland was a hiccup to them. They freed Poland from a horrible regime, um, and that's already this honest, but it is out there. And we can't deny that as far as Russia is concerned, they won the war. And they won it from 1941 on. And if you look at the date that that the Russians occupied Poland and what they did in Poland since then, you will see that there is truth to, to, to our counter-argument that no, you did not win the war by yourself. And no, it, it, war is fought on many fronts. In that third book, Who Has Buried the Dead, the Polish element is very important. This is about Poland, Polish scientists. So how important is Poland for you? Well, you see, I never stopped being Polish. I don't speak the language but my father's son. My father was in two POW camps, ended up in a concentration camp because he would not renounce who he was. He actually escaped from two POW camps, fought in the French Maquis, for which he received medals from the French government, in the Dutch underground. When he escaped from the Dutch underground the second time, that was the second escape, he was captured by the Gestapo and put in a place called the Urania Hotel, 
which is in the hall in this haven, which is outside the Hague. And uh, he was put to death. That was the, about 48 hours you're going to be shot. And for some reason, they never shot him. So God willing, he still he was around for another 40 years. It wasn't in the books that he was to die. So I have great affection for the nation as, as strengths, not necessarily any political party, but the strengths of the nation. I think the Poles are resilient, and they fought democratic wars for Italy, for Haiti. I mean, around the world where they have no democracy in their own nation, they helped others attain democracy. And, you know, the second constitution in the world is, is the Polish constitution after the Americans. So, so there's a lot of truth to the fact that we understand democracy, and we certainly, as Poles, be the diaspora, English-speaking, whatever, Australian, English-speaking from England or Australia or Canada, whatever, South Africa, Poles understand what it means to have freedom. And I think Poles, as a totality, understand what it means to be occupied. And we have to bring that forward to the general public, which is why I wrote a book in English. So I think there is a generation of young Poles who don't understand the context of who we are. Uh, like we were born, we were born, and that was it, and isn't fun to dance, and, but we are greater than that. And there is a generation of Canadians who don't understand who Poland is. You know, the English-speaking audience, the last good book written by a Pole in English was written in 1967, I think, by called, a man called Vladislav Kunisa, who wrote A Thousand Hour Day, which is the book of the year, um, and it was about the invasion of Poland. And since that time, no one has dared go over that tr threshold to look at what Poland was in totality. No one knows about the Warsaw Uprising. There's no fiction, no thriller. There are esoteric books aimed to a special audience that are very particular in their, their desire to reach that group, that group, that group. But this book is aimed at the general public. And this book is a popular novel, a thriller, that President HarperCollins Canada and retired recently President Penguin Group so this book is has all the makings of a national bestseller as a thriller. So what genre is it? Is it pure analytical history? No. So I, I don't compare myself to what I think is a brilliant man, Norman Davies. Is it is it a revisionist history? No, it's not A.G.P. Taylor from who writes British history that you know polls were the cause of Hitler doing this. It wasn't Hitler's fault. Um, but it is the first book I think since Kunisa for the mainstream public, not historians or you know, people who have a specific interest in this specific skill set or knowledge. This book tries to open the doors to people to acquire some sense of how deep history is. There is a topic that was mentioned in, in, in those promotional materials. Otherwise, I wouldn't have dared probably talk about it. But um, that's your cancer. It's unbelievable. Ugh. Yeah, and I want to talk about it if you don't mind, at least a oh, few no, words. No. Since it's there, I understand it's a topic that can be discussed. How is it possible that you wrote this book while you were going through very, very intensive chemo treatments, right? And surgery and all this. Now, from what I understand, you're back at work. Oh, I've been uh, back at work from the very beginning. I was only off five, six weeks after the first major surgery and then another surgery. And then I had two x-rays and I went through Chopin Airport 
and I got stopped going through the, the exit. The red lights went on. The border police came to me, and I showed my badge because I carried my ID. And they started laughing, and they showed me on the X-ray machine that looked like the Green Hornet. I was so full of uh, radiation. Uh, then I've had 52 chemo treatments, uh, but I go back to work the next day, and and I'm not a survivor. I do not like the term survivor. I save that term for people who face death. I might have been facing death. I just I'm not in denial. But, uh, you know, survivors are people who go through concentration camps. Survivors are people who go through wars. Survivors are people who live in, in a destroyed city and survive. God willing, I'm a lucky guy. I was asked by a reporter, how did I survive? I said, I'm a Canadian. <laughs> you know, I go out in the middle of winter in a, in a T-shirt because I, I purposely want to do that because my will to live is stronger than my thought process that says, well, you know, it's been a good game. It ain't over till it till it's over, as Yogi Berra said in baseball. So, what are where are we now? Are you okay? Uh, and yeah, well, uh, apparently, uh, three days ago, I was talking to my liver specialist, who's very good, David Wong, so Toronto General. He says that the liver is perfect because I had what they call is a myelosarcoma, and one in one point five million people got it, and three quarters of those people are female, so it's very rare in a male. So I like I, I you know I got the lottery I won the lottery and my oncologist who's a great guy Albi Razek who's from actually originally from Malaysia we used to talk about Malaya history of Malaya Albi said the same thing he said uh, you're doing well we're going to stop treatments for a few months because you don't need it right now and we'll just monitor it because nothing's growing and it seems to be stabilizing now I'll always have cancer let's get something straight once it's there it's there and people who you know. When you get my type of cancer, it's always there. But right now, it's very controlled. I find strength in, in working with people. I, I could never sit at home watching television. So I went to work as soon as I could. I had a whole bunch of staples. I worked through the, the snowstorm, the big one, 17 January uh, this year. And I was on duty 13 hours. It was hard because I didn't have the energy level. But you know what? I'm no hero. But there's a whole bunch of cars stuck in the snow. So I spent 13 hours helping people out of cars in two feet deep snow. Um, doesn't make me a saint. It's what I do for a living. I'm a police officer. Since KGE Conkel. KGE, Edwards. what is what does that stand for? But Kazimir Gerhard Edwards. Right. And okay. KGE Conkel. When uh, is this K KGE Conkel going to write another book of number four? He's starting one already. All right. Oh, yeah. And this is going to be about what? You know, I, I discovered that this war that is on the dark side of the world between the various agencies, which uses us as puppets sometimes, like the various like CIA and KGB and NFSB and, and all these agencies, uh, I've taken to the next generation in, in the next book. And I'm very actively looking at the gray zone when the war was over, Indochina had collapsed. The Americans did not want any colonies. And I found a little note in the, in the history or a thesis that a, a fellow written at the U.S. Air Force Academy. And he talked about in the last days of the war, the 10 unmarked British Air Force Liberator bombers were shot down, uh, carrying uh, undercover agents into the forward French into China, but they were shot down by American aircraft. Yeah. And that to me, I thought, oh, that's different. So you start with that premise and build on it and say, well, how does that happen? Because it's factual. I mean, this was a, a major writing this PhD thesis 
at the Air Force Academy, and I found the actual notes in different books and different volumes, little parts of it. And I thought, let's build a premise because Saigon and Vietnam at that time was in that gray zone between communism, capitalism, freedom, becoming another colony. And it's that whole idea of the human experience is not like ice cream and candy. It's painful, it's dangerous, and it is life. So I wanted to write about that because the decolonization process was never easy. Much as I think, flipping back to the current book, Who is Buried the Dead, which is available on Amazon and on, on Indigo in Canada. But the same premise operates. Um, it's, it's never what you think. There are always players in the back room. It's never easy. And the tra- we as, as citizens of this world, forget the nations, have to realize that sometimes we're told the whole truth, some of the truth, sometimes none of the truth. And our job is not necessarily to de- decipher the truth, but reality is always not true. It is reality. I want to thank you very much for this conversation. I can't wait to find out what that biggest uh, last secret of the war is. Oh, it's big. It is big. Okay. <laughs> I really do wish you that your cancer is just a story of the past and that you continue working as you as you do. Obviously, this is your life. So keep working and keep writing. Okay. Thank you so much, Chuck. All the best. God bless. Take care. Please go on podcast website, mypodcast.com, to learn more about KGE Chuck Conkle and his latest book, which will definitely make a great Christmas gift. Thank you for all the nice comments I get from you about podcast, my dear podcast listeners. Podcast and I would love your financial support as well, hence the crowdfunding campaign. Thank you to those who are already helping and supporting podcast. Like all other podcasts, this one counts and depends on its listeners. What is free for you to listen to is not free for me to make. I have to pay for the server, MailChimp to send newsletters, for the equipment, and last but not least, work that goes into producing it. Would you take me out for a coffee or donut once a month or lunch? If you would, but you cannot, because we're too far apart, please support Polcast with the equivalent of that. Go to mypolcast.com slash support and please make a pledge. Let me take this opportunity to thank all Polcast listeners and our kind donors. I love you all. For a lot of additional information, multimedia links, please visit our website at mypodcast.com. And while you're there, please share your comments, your reactions, and suggest ideas. If you like what you heard, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to rate this episode on your favorite podcast app. If you know of any interesting story that I should cover on podcast, please let me know. Thank you.
So as I said, this is the last episode of podcast before Christmas and the last in this year. Two years ago, in the last episode of 2020, I wished you, all of us, the end of the pandemic, not knowing that almost the same wishes would be repeated a year later in 2021. And we were ending that year, 2021, having no idea that so soon, in February 2022, we will witness the beginning of the war in Ukraine. Today is day 289 of this brutal, merciless, senseless war, which has killed and injured thousands of children, adults and seniors, and is a string of never-ending horrifying atrocities. I don't know how it's possible to celebrate Christmas or New Year in the same carefree way with this in the background. So all I wish all of you, all of us, is my three H's. Happiness, cherish it if you have it. Health, ditto. And hope. I wish us all love, goodness, distance to little everyday problems and compassion. There are so many people who need our help and support, and we should be there for them at all times. I want to leave you with some Christmas music, played by Joanna Chapka Sangster, a musician, radio broadcaster in Edmonton, please listen to Nasha Radio Canada, and a passionate human rights activist, one of the founders of Democracy Poland Action Committee in Canada, DPAC. Joanna is an award-winning violinist with the Edmonton Symphony Orchestra, and she also has her own Obsessions Octet, which played at Carnegie Hall. If you look up our previous Christmas episodes of podcast, you will hear a lot of Joanna and her stories, beautiful stories about Christmas music. I want you to listen to Joanna's rendition of one of the most beautiful Christmas carols, Oi Maluszki Maluszki, arranged, by the way, by her radio collaborator, Jacek Sobieraj. And to all our podcast listeners and fans all around the world, my greetings in Polish. Wesołych Świąt i szczęśliwego Nowego Roku. Thank you.